Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Matthew chapter 5, and you can skip down to verse 21. And since I've been here the first uh, three weeks, we primarily focused on Uh, forgiveness, but looking at more of the vertical aspect of forgiveness, how God forgives us. We looked at how God forgave Adam and Eve in the garden. We looked at how God forgave, um, well, really we looked at how Joseph forgave his brothers in Genesis, but how that was a picture of God's love for us. And then we also looked at God's uh, forgiveness for David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Today is the transition day. We're making a turn. How should our experience of the vertical Uh, forgiveness we get from Father God in heaven translate into our practice of the horizontal uh, forgiveness. And then how do those two kind of interact with each other? So let's start out in Matthew chapter 5. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And you're probably familiar with this. Okay, the the longest sermon of Jesus recorded. He starts out with the Beatitudes and he says, Don't suppose that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And then he starts to take the Old Testament law, the moral law, and say, you've heard it said, basically, a lot of these Pharisees have been teaching it wrong, let me teach it the right way. And in many ways, what he does is he deepens it. He doesn't lessen it. He, he more accurately applies it. And the very first thing that he does, even before lust, which is pretty ubiquitous then and now, uh, is anger. Because if anything, it would be even more prevalent in every human heart. So, Matthew chapter 5, and start in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, would be the equivalent of saying like, you blockhead, you moron, you idiot, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, um, sinful anger is akin to murder. That's basically what he's saying. Sinful anger is like baby murder in the heart. It's just a seed form. And if you let it grow big enough, it will lead to murder. Okay? Um, That's in every human heart. Now, there's usually at least one person in a class this size, you know, we start talking about this one. What about righteous anger? If we have long enough, we'll get there before the quarter gets over. Okay? Um, Because the Bible, there is such a thing as a category of righteous anger. But let's just be honest with ourselves for a second. I don't think most of us hardly ever get there. And if we do get there, we don't stay there very long, right? Our righteous anger very quickly turns into sinful anger. So here's just kind of a bottom line uh, definition of how you can distinguish between sinful anger and righteous anger. And I think I'm somewhat borrowing from Matthew Henry here. The way to be angry, righteously angry, like God is angry, is to only be angry at sin. So I'm never just angry at, well, that person hurt my feelings, or that person was mean, or that person offended me, blah, blah, blah. It's I'm only angry at sin. I'm ang- and, and I'm mainly angry because the glory of God has been offended, not because I've been personally offended. So just as a fun experiment, check your heart this week and see how often you're just passionately offended, just at sin, just for the glory of God, and your personal business isn't swept up in it at all. Okay? So um, Jesus is putting this focus on anger. And that's what we want to talk about. So first point, he's focusing on anger. And let's start in just right where we left off, verse 23. Therefore... 
If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Now there's a lot going on here. This sermon was probably delivered in Galilee. So it's talking about somebody, a faithful, devout Jew, leaving Galilee, traveling all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, to bring his sacrifice. And then getting there and remembering, oh no, me and my brother had a little tiff recently. Leaving the altar, going back, reconciling, or at least trying to reconcile with your brother first, and then coming back to worship. Could have been at least a week's journey to do that. Now let me just pause for a second. Anybody ever done anything like this in our lives? I mean, I tried to wrestle with... I I have a couple of incidents in my life where sitting in church and my wife and I had had a fight, maybe the morning of, the night before, and and I'm getting convicted, and I start maybe writing notes to her or texting her, I'm sorry, please forget, okay? I, I have done that a couple of times. Beyond that, I don't know that I've ever really been like, you know what, I've got to leave this worship service right now and go call somebody. I don't think most of us take this very serious. All right, glad that I accidentally connected to Wi-Fi. Thank you for that. Um, there we go. Um, listen, and it's easy to read this passage and think, well, this must be like of a huge issue. But notice the word in verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. The Greek word there for something is used 1,200 times in the New Testament because it's akin to our English word for something, like anything. Big, little, small, seemingly indifferent, anything. Now, here's the other thing that I think we can breeze past too quickly. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, have any of you ever been in a situation where you're like, well, I know his feelings are hurt, but I feel fine. I'm not mad. I'm not hurt. He's just being immature. Anybody ever had that experience? I've had that experience in spades. Now, let's just be honest for a second. The average middle-class Western person, even professing evangelical, when we tend to think, yeah, we had some conflict, but I, I think I was right with the Lord. I'm not hurt. I'm not mad. I'm not sad. I'm not pouting. I'm not being a little baby about it, but they got the problem. What is our natural response to such a situation? This is the crowd participation part. I really want to know. Well, how do we respond to that? They just need to get over it. They need to get over it. Or maybe they need to initiate to me. Or maybe they need to apologize. Or maybe they need to call me. Or maybe they need to write me a letter. But this says, if you know he has something against you, you go. The ball is always in your court. Whether you're hurt or they're hurt or you're both hurt, the ball is always in your court. Most of us rarely live this way. Okay? book uh, by Ken, um, the, the peacemaker. Are you all familiar with that? He's taught here before. Adjust the intensity of our communication to fit the other person's position. Listen, this applies outside of marriage, but oh my goodness, does it apply in marriage, right? We could just turn this whole thing into a marriage seminar. 
How many times has there been a tiff? Okay, and I'm just going to tell this from the male perspective because I've been a male my whole life, all right? And, uh, you know, my wife might be offended or feeling hurt or whatever at level eight. But I only feel like it was level two. So I come in with an apology at level two. Ever been here, right? Sorry if you got your feelings hurt by the truth I was speaking earlier. (laughs) That usually goes over like a lead balloon. If I realize, okay, with, with a child, with a coworker, whoever it may be, this person is more offended. And I may think they, they are out of their mind. Out of love, I need to say, I need to, in a genuine and sincere way, listen, not in a sarcastic, right? I, I used to be an expert at this one. I'm still an expert. I just try to stifle it. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that doesn't help either. Hey, hey, babe. I'm trying my best to put myself in your shoes. I I don't fully understand. It would be a lie for me to say I fully understand how you feel. I'm trying. Honestly, before Jesus, I'm trying. And I'm starting to maybe get a little taste of it. I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? Right? That goes a lot better. Say that again. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Write that down. And let me just, yeah, I'll I'll say this. You know, if you just try to say the words, but you don't mean it, it it's not going to work. She will smell it, okay? Mark eleven twenty five. okay? Just keep your finger here in Matthew 5. This is going to be our main passage coming back. But Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Um, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgression. So listen, you can't say, well, Jesus said, Matthew 5, if your brother, and I have something, so I'm going to wait for him to obey Matthew 5. No, no, because Mark 11 says, if you're standing and you remember, no, 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 I'm the one that's mad. Right then, you just forgive in your heart. Seems almost impossible. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says, successful prayer requires forgiveness. Okay. No, let's just be honest. At first glance, it seems like Jesus is making loving your neighbor, the second greatest commandment, more important than the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does he not? Because I'm at worship, man. I'm worshiping Jesus. Greatest commandment. And he says, no, no, no. You press pause there and you go settle the conflict with your brother as best you can until you come back. What is Jesus doing? Do you remember when the lawyers, the Pharisees would ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He was quick to say, the greatest commandment is the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There, it is the number one. But then he would say, and the second is like it. They didn't ask for the second. Why was he so quick to give the second? He knew the hearts. What's that? He knew the hearts. He knew their hearts, exactly. And he knew that if he just said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, they'd be like, we got that, man. We tithe, we fast, we go to temple, we're so clean, we practice the Sabbath better than anybody. And he's like, no, 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 you want to know if you really love the Lord your God? It shows out in how you love your brother. That's the real proof. That's the real evidence. Don't just rub your ceremonial cleanliness in somebody's face. How can you, First know, John, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen when you hate your brother who you do see? That's what he's doing here, okay? Listen, worship in some sense is just a celebration of forgiveness, right? That's what it's supposed to be. God, we love you. You're holy and yet you're merciful. You hadn't killed me yet. Thank you for saving me. That's what worship is in some of its essence. Thank you for your covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. How can I sincerely be in worship celebrating the reality of forgiveness when I'm refusing to practice it? You can't. 
It's hypocritical. Hendrickson says, included in saving faith is the eagerness to forgive. Hang on to that phrase. You meditate on that one long enough and it will really convict you. You try to apply it and it will change your life. If you genuinely be saved, there ought to at least be, you may not have the full bloom, right? But you ought to start at least having the baby seed of an eagerness to forgive other people. Jesus was eager to forgive me. I should be eager to forgive others. John Piper says, Gladness over forgiveness and desire for revenge can't go together in my heart. It doesn't work. So, loving your neighbor through forgiving your neighbor should be a huge focus in our lives. And let me just ask us, myself included, is it? I don't think it is for the average Western middle class evangelical. Why isn't it as important as it ought to be? You know, what do you all think? Now, I think many would say, myself included, I don't get offended that much. I'm not aware of stuff I should be forgiving. I mean, honestly. I mean, it's kind of like, apart from Jesus, it would be like my personality is John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and a rock rolled into one. (laughs) Strong, silent, and stable. You can't hurt me. And I'm glad I got Jesus. Because it says, yeah, that's not really how it works. I'm not saying that some people aren't more thick-skinned than others. But at the end of the day, we're all made in the image of God. So there ought to be a frequency of forgiveness. So let's keep going in Summer on the Mount. Skip over to chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, which we're all familiar with, right? This is supposed to be our model for daily praying. Not that you literally have to pray these words, but this is kind of like the outline. These themes ought to show up in your prayer life every day. That's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 6, and just skip down, verse 12. And forgive us our debts. And I think most of us are like, yep, I got that one. I know I'm supposed to be praying for forgiveness every day. I might literally do it, but I'm doing it pretty often because I'm aware of my own sin. But look at the second half of that same sentence. As also we have forgiven our debtors. How often is that theme showing up? I remember hearing a PCA pastor, this guy, love and respect. He's kind of a mentor, older, very wise, or spirit-filled. I mean, a Reverend Barker type person. And he was teaching kind of on personal devotional life. And so he was walking through what he did in his personal devotions. And he, he was walking through the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's pretty ingenious. And he said, so every day I kind of pray through, is there anybody I need to forgive? And I just, in my brain, I honestly thought, every day you pray about that? What's wrong with you? Are you some hypersensitive person? Are you insecure? And I thought, well, he's got the Bible on his side. The words of Jesus, maybe I should shut up and listen. Now listen, I'm obviously not saying we need to make up offenses. Nobody offended me yesterday, God, but let me think of somebody that I can pretend like they offended me. Of course not. I just think we need to do a better job of checking the oil of our heart. Is there anybody that in the smallest way, in the slightest way, kind of ticked me off and I'm holding like a baby grudge, right? I mean, I don't have anger. I just got frustration. Okay, right. It's just baby anger. Yeah, but even if they didn't offend you, they they said they needed to be. There's still a forgiveness factor from from our end, right? Sure, there can be, right? I mean, you, let's take your kids. How many times do your kids do something that's wrong and sinful, but it doesn't necessarily offend you because you're just like, well, they're just being a stupid kid. And you're like, ah, but also that that was sinful. They knew better, and so I need to forgive. Yes. Yeah, but it's an act of faith to seek out ways to. Like that guy was saying, you're joyful or whatever you just said about... Eager to forgive. Eager to forgive. Eager to forgive. That's an active 
active faith. I mean, I see the importance of that. You've got to be praying. You've got to be asking the Lord, change me, make me this way. Now, I think there's two ways. Okay, there's two main ways that people tend to respond to normal everyday offenses. Okay, first is, and no elbows on this, okay, just because I think we all have a tendency towards one of these. I've already mentioned one, but the first would be the sad, pouty victim, woe is me, I'm hurt so bad, life is so hard, so I can't forgive. They just take sin and hurt too seriously, right? And we all at least know somebody like that. Well, somebody cut me off in traffic today, and then my mom said she was going to call, and she didn't call me back for like four hours. And she's like, good gracious. Right? There's wars going on, and people dying of famine and disease, and you grow up. They take it way too serious. But the second is the one that I'm most afraid of in our circles, and I know I'm most afraid of it in my heart, is, hey, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Can't hurt me. Listen, this is often just a spiritualized fig leaf. God's sovereign. I'm fine. I got this. You don't take sin and, and offense seriously enough. And usually what happens is you're just stuffing this stuff down in the volcano. Look at how stoic I can be for Jesus. It's going to blow up one day. It might not blow up in a yelling match, but it, but it will turn into a hard, jaded, cynical heart where you're distant from everybody. You know people like this? They just seem metallic almost. You're like, I, I want to get to know this person. I'm trying to get close to them. But they, they just seem like they're stiff-arming everybody. Unfortunately, I know a lot of Christians like this. And I think because they're trying to deal with their pain and their hurt like this. Because they think it's more mature. Rather than having the humility to say, that really hurt me. I remember early in our marriage, I was trying to be like super Jesus husband. So I was just like, I am not going to let anything my wife does bother me. I'm just going to be like so forgiving, I never bring anything up. You know? Well, that worked terribly, <laughs> as you can imagine. And I would vacillate, but sometimes, sometimes blowing up, I finally couldn't take it anymore. You know, six months of anger just coming out on date night. It's not very fun. <laughs> or me just kind of being this hard, angry, distant, stoic and listen, it's just a form of arrogance and pride. And underneath it, what it really is, it's insecurity. I didn't have the humility to say, you know what, you hurt my feelings. I feel kind of effeminate saying that, but that's the reality. Is You said something at the dinner table in front of other people, and it hurt my feelings. I wish it didn't. I wish I was more spiritual. But the reality is, you hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. I w you know, and you know what? Nine times out of ten, she responded great to that. It was like a breath of fresh air that I was being honest and humble. And she'd say, a lot of times, like, I'm sorry, I didn't think of that. I, I can now see how maybe that felt a little disrespectful to you. I'm, I'm sorry, thank you for telling me. And you know what? I felt better, she felt better. Everybody won. Okay, so here, here's, here's an assignment for the week. Pray this week that the Lord would bring to mind if there's anybody you need to forgive or seek reconciliation with from maybe something done. Listen, and this, guys, this may be from something tiny that was said at the office last week. Or this may be from something in your family 10 years ago that was said that wrecked your life and you're still reaping the negative consequences of it. Now, let's just be honest for a second. Does anything bother you about how this phrase in the Lord's Prayer is worded? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Does that bother anybody? 
Be honest, I'm not going to call anybody a heretic. Okay? What's that? Yeah. If you were in a North Korean prison camp and you only had one little scrap of the Bible and it was that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. That's all you had of the Bible. And somebody said, how do you get forgiveness from God? What would your answer be? Well, I got to go forgive other people first. I mean, it sounds like works-based salvation. I got to go practice forgiveness before I can receive forgiveness. Now, we know that's not what it means, right? Why? Number one, the whole Bible, okay, is antithetical to works-based salvation. But guys, even the context, right? The best way to interpret Scripture is always in light of Scripture. Look at verse 8, what Jesus said, you know, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, our Father. This is a prayer for Christians. These are people that have already been saved, they've already been forgiven, they've already been adopted in the family of God. Now, this is a, a, a longer uh, thing that we could go deep into. I'm not going to take the time to do it right now, okay? But... When a person genuinely places their faith in Christ, they are instantly justified. I mean, we just had Reformation Day, right? That was Martin Luther versus the whole Catholic Church. You're instantly declared righteous, legally forgiven, positionally forgiven, adopted into the family of God. But there's a difference between positional forgiveness and practical forgiveness. And, and let me explain it in a couple of different ways. Uh, Let's imagine that you have a child, okay? You probably won't have to imagine very hard. And they did something really sinful and really bad. And you're like, you need to apologize. I'm not apologizing. And you're like, okay, go to your room. And you don't get any dinner until you can come out and have a good attitude and be humble and apologize. You don't disown the child. You don't say, I'm sending you on a plane to Russia. I'm done with you. You don't kick them out of your family. You don't cease to love them. But their experience of your love is muted as a fatherly chastisement, as discipline, right? And listen, that, that's just that's parenting 101. Why? Because that's the way God parents us, right? Who did we already see this with that we've been looking at this quarter? It's exactly what God did with David. David was a true believer in the Old Testament sense, and God did not cut him off. But, you know, David said in Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. Your hand was heavy. Upon. God was disciplining him. He was, remember David prayed in Psalm 51, he was repenting, restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. I haven't been experiencing the joy of my salvation. I've been saved, but there's been no joy. Why? Because I was hard-hearted in my sin. And then he got broken and restored. That's the way it works. Now, uh, let me just show you this one other place in the Bible. Keep your finger in Matthew. We're coming right back. Flip over to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. A little strange passage you might be familiar with, but maybe this will help us understand it. John, chapter 13. This is the Lord's Supper, the washing of the feet. Skip down to verse 6. Jesus is washing the feet. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet, Jesus answered him. If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my head and my hands. Okay, Peter's the roller coaster. You can't do it? You know what? Give me a whole bath. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 
What, what's the metaphor Jesus is saying there? If you already have been saved, if you already have true saving faith, you've already been bathed, you've already been cleansed. But as you walk through your normal life, there's going to be little sins that you commit again. And they, in a sense, need to be cleansed off of your feet for the intimacy of our relationship. You don't have to take a whole bath again. You're already in the family. Okay, does that, does that make sense? The difference in positional, legal forgiveness in the cosmic courtroom of the universe and then the practical experience of forgiveness. Okay? There's the once and for all cleansing and then there's the ongoing daily forgiveness. Okay? A couple more illustrations because this, this is so important, important to get your mind around this. Because if you think it's all this, you're going to live like a, a libertine and you're not going to take the moral law of God serious. And if you think it's all this, it's all the practical forgiveness, you're going to live like a legalist like God's love does depend on your performance, and both are bad. So two more quick illustrations. I mean, just when you get married, right? I think we've all been through that. You stand in front of the church, God and everybody, and the, the minister says, you're now one in Christ. What God has joined together, let no one put us under. Positionally, legally, you're one. Practically, are you one? No way. I mean, a lot of people almost get in gigantic fights at the reception about how they're going to feed cake to each other. <laughs> I've been married 23 and a half years now. I love my wife so much more. We're so much more one practically than we used to be, but we're still not all the way there. Still a lot of ways we're not one. Imagine if your dad died and he left you a $10 million inheritance, but he said, here's the way it's going to work. You don't just get the whole $10 million lump sum. It's in the bank account, and you can get it out with an ATM whenever you need it. $800 a day. I mean, you've got it all. It's yours. It's in your name legally. But the practical experience of that money comes as you need it. Does that make sense? Okay. So, this is so important, guys. What does it mean when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors? Here's what it means. To the degree that I am or I am not practicing forgiveness at the horizontal level as a Christian will be the key to how much I'm experiencing of God's practical forgiveness of me. Does that make sense? I can't tell you how many times. This happens to me several times a year, every year for as long as I can remember. I'll be teaching a Sunday school class, a conference, a men's retreat, a student meeting, whatever, and I'll get done and somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, man, I, I just feel so far from God, so distant, so cold, and never hears my prayer, no intimacy, nothing personal. And I usually have about three questions I go through. I say, well, are, are you practicing the means of grace? You know, are you you're going to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're worshiping. Yes, I'm trying to do everything I know. I'm not perfect, but pretty much every day I read my Bible, pray. Okay. Is there any kind of like unconfessed sin? And I'm not asking you, are you sinlessly perfect? But I mean, like, do you have a secret porn addiction nobody knows about? Like, no, I mean, every, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to fight and kill every sin ever. Okay. Is there anybody in your life that you haven't forgiven, that you have a grudge against? And almost always, their head just drops. And they're like, yeah, there is somebody. You only have to think about it. Well, two things about that amaze me. The first is when I say, is there any unconfessed, unrepentant sin? They don't think about unforgiveness. It's like, well, that is not a sin. That's just normal life. That's just being a human. It doesn't cross their mind. And then when I say, is there somebody? They're like, yeah. It's a blockage. To the degree that we are willing to practice it's like to the degree that I'm willing to open the valve of my heart to let forgiveness flow free and clear to everybody I interact with. It's the same crank that opens the valve to God so I can experience His forgiveness. 
It doesn't affect how much I have it legally and positionally and eternally. It does affect how much I experience it. Let me read several quotes so y'all don't think I'm a heretic, okay? These are all good, reformed commentators, okay? Hendrickson says, horizontal forgiveness is that which must be complied with for us to enjoy God's forgiveness of our own sins. An unforgiving heart is not in a condition that can accept forgiveness. Shamblin, used to teach at RTS, said, "Let he, here's how he interprets that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Let us experience your forgiveness. John Gill, famous Reformed Baptist, says, manifest, just means make obvious. God's forgiving love to you. Your Father has not given you a true sense of the pardon of your sins, nor can you be certain that He will, nor have you any reason to expect it when you are so cruel and revengeful to others. John Calvin, you have to quote, John Calvin wants a quarter, they kick you out of Briarwood. Okay, so here it is. So long as a difference with our neighbor is kept up by our fault, we will have no access to God. And I've got more, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read them. Okay. Um, if you close your heart towards forgiveness towards others, it will necessarily close your heart towards experiencing God's forgiveness. Okay. Unfortunately, it's pretty common in this day and age for believers not to experience much intimacy with God. And this is a huge reason why. Now, let me just talk application for a minute. Okay. Um, Here's MacArthur. The, if you don't get anything else, get this. Forgiveness is the most God-like thing believers can do. Nothing is more divine than to forgive. It's pretty good, isn't it? And as I was kind of meditating on that quote, here's what came to my heart. If that's true, and I think it is, then nothing is more satanic than to hold a grudge. The deeper sin under the sin, the sin under the sin, so to speak, is that subtly, subconsciously, we're suspicious that maybe God isn't quite as lavish with His grace as He says He is. Okay? Um, because when we're really guys bathing in the depths of His grace and mercy and love, it does become a lot easier to share His love with others, His forgiveness, even those that have hurt us, even our enemies. Go back to my illustration of the dad that dies and gives you a $10 million inheritance. He says it's all in the bank and you can access it whenever you need to. You just can't get all, you just get it when you need it from the ATM. But what if you were suspect? I know dad said there's $10 million in there. But you know, but it's all just little dots on the screen. I hadn't actually seen, I'd like to see the 10 million stacks of greenbacks. I'm not sure all that 10 million is in there. I'm going to be real careful on how much I take out every day, right? I'm not going to be lavish with my grace because I'm not really sure he was lavish with his grace. But if I'm convinced, I got $10 million in the bank. Somebody just hurt my feelings. Let me just cover it with love and grace because I'm swimming in it personally. Now listen, um, this is a lot easier said than done. And we got more lessons okay, to practically work this out. But I remember my wife and I doing some marriage counseling one time and the husband had hurt the wife. And, you know, the, the wife's like, I want to forgive and I'm supposed to forgive. And this is a couple on staff campus outreach. Um, and, but I'm just having a really hard time. And my wife, out of plenty of experience of forgiving me and needing to forgive me, said, the more you practice forgiveness, the easier it becomes. And that's true. And unfortunately, the more you practice holding a grudge, the more natural that becomes too. You're just hardening your heart. Guys, remember the story about Joseph? 
had they really received full forgiveness, full and free from Joseph? They absolutely had. But they didn't really trust it. They were still suspicious. And too many of us live that way. Now, last thought. I think it's very easy for us to understand how even a very devout religious Jew who had to go up to temple once a year at least for Yom Kippur and take his sacrifice and sacrifice it on the altar there with the high priest. I think, I mean, I'm reading through the Bible right now and I've just finished Leviticus, I'm in Numbers. It makes total sense to me how just a normal sinner like me and you could be standing there knowing the law of God, seeing the lamb slaughtered, burned up and all that, and thinking, really? This little lamb, that blood, that gets me all free and clear? Hey, something doesn't seem to jive. We shouldn't have that problem because we have seen the one true precious lamb of God, the Son of God, slaughtered in our place. So we ought to be convinced of the forgiveness that we have for our great and wicked sins. And it ought to become more and more easy and natural for us to practice it on a daily basis. And guys, the more you do it, it's symbiotic. The more I'll practice it horizontally, the more I'll experience it vertically. And then the easier it'll be to practice it horizontally. And the more I'll, it just, it'll be glorious. Be a little taste of heaven. Lord Jesus, please make this more of a reality in our lives. Convict us where we need it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.